Section 67 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. Chapter 19, The Eve of the Reformation, by Henry Charles Leah, Part 4. There was no product of humanistic literature, however, which so aided in paving the way for the Reformation as the Narrenschiff or ship of fools the work of a layman sebastian brandt chancellor city clerk of strasburg countless editions and numerous translations of this work first printed at basel in fourteen ninety four showed how exactly it responded to the popular tendencies and how wide and lasting was its influence one of the foremost preachers of the day geiler von Kaisenberg used its several chapters or sections as texts for a series of sermons at Strasbourg in 1498, and the opinions of the poet lost none of their significance in the expositions of the preacher. The work forms a singularly instructive document for the intellectual and moral history of the period. Brandt satirizes all the follies and weaknesses of man. Those of the clergy are of course included, and, though no special attention is devoted to them, the manner in which they are handled shows how completely the priesthood had forfeited popular respect. But the important feature of the work is the deep moral earnestness which pervades its jest and satire. Man is exhorted never to lose sight of his salvation, and the future life is represented as the goal to which his efforts are to be directed. With all this, the church is never referred to as the means through which the pardon of sins and the grace of God are to be attained. Confession is alluded to in passing once or twice, but not the intercession of the Virgin and saints, and there is no intimation that the offices of the church are essential. The lesson is taught that man deals directly with God and is responsible to him alone. Most significant is the remark that many a mass is celebrated which had better have been left unsung, for God does not accept a sacrifice sinfully offered in sin. Wisdom is the one thing for which man should strive, wisdom being obedience to God and a virtuous life, while the examples cited are almost exclusively drawn from classic paganism. Hercules, Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato, Penelope, Virgil, though the references to scripture show adequate acquaintance with holy writ. As the embodiment of humanistic teaching through which Germany, unlike Italy, aspired to moral elevation as well as to classical training, the Narenschiff holds the highest place alike for comprehensiveness and effectiveness. It is not to be supposed that these influences were allowed to develop without protest or opposition. The battle between humanism and obscurantism had been fought out in Italy in the middle of the 15th century in the strife between Lorenzo Valla and the mendicant friars, backed by the Inquisition. In Germany the struggle took place in the second decade of the 16th century over Reuchlin on the occasion of his protesting against Pfefferkorn's measures for the destruction of objectionable Hebrew books. It arrayed the opposing forces in internecine conflict and all the culture of Europe was ranged on the side of the scholar who was threatened with prosecution by the Inquisition. The new learning recognized the danger to which it was exposed, and its disciples found themselves unconsciously organizing for self-defense and for attack. Religious dogma was not really involved, but the authority of the schools was at stake, 
and the power to silence by persecution an adversary who could not be overcome in argument. The bitterness on both sides was intense, and victory seemed to perch alternately on the opposing banners, but the quarrel virtually sunk out of sight in the larger issues raised by the opening years of the Reformation. Technically, the obscurantists triumphed, but it was a pyrrhic victory, for the discussion had done its work, and incidentally it had given occasion for blighting ridicule of the trivialities of the schools and the stupid ignorance of the schoolmen in the Epistole Obscurorum Virorum, 1514, a production that largely contributed to the popular contempt in which the ancient system was beginning to be held. The whole of this movement had been rendered possible by the invention of printing, which facilitated so enormously the diffusion of intelligence, which enabled public opinion to form and express itself, and which, by bringing into communication minds of similar ways of thinking, afforded opportunity for combined action. When we are told that bibliographers enumerate thirteen German versions of the Bible anterior to Luther's, and that repeated editions of these were called for, we can measure not only the religious earnestness of the people, but the degree in which it was stimulated by the process which brought the scriptures within reach of the multitude. Cochleus complains that when Luther's translation of the New Testament appeared in 1522, everyone sought it without distinction of age or station, and they speedily acquired such familiarity with it that they audaciously disputed with doctors of theology and regarded it as the fountain of all truth. Tradition and scholastic dogma had under such circumstances small chance of reverence. When, therefore, on the 31st of October, 1517, Luther's fateful theses were hung on the church door at Wittenberg, they were, as he tells us, known in a fortnight throughout Germany, and in a month they had reached Rome and were being read in every school and convent in Europe, a result manifestly impossible without the aid of the printing press. The reformers took full advantage of the opportunities which it afforded, and for the most part they had the sympathies of the printers themselves. The assertion of the Epistole Obscurorum Virorum, said in Domofromenii sunt multi pravi heretici, is doubtless true of all the great printing offices. It was a standing grievance with the papalists that the printers eagerly printed and circulated everything on the Lutheran side, while the Catholics had difficulty in bringing their works before the public, and had to defray the cost themselves. But this is doubtless rather attributable to the fact that there was a steady demand for the one and not for the other. It had not taken the church long to recognize the potential dangers of the printing press. In 1479, Sixtus IV empowered the University of Cologne to proceed with censures against the printers, purchasers, and readers of heretical books. In 1486, Berthold, Archbishop of Mainz, endeavored to establish a crude censorship over translations into the vernacular. Alexander VI, in 1501, took a more comprehensive step, reciting that many books and tracts were printed containing various errors and perverted doctrines, wherefore in future no book was to be printed without preliminary examination and license, while all existing books were to be inspected, and those not approved were to be surrendered. The Fifth Lateran Council adopted, with but one dissenting voice, a decree laid out before it by Leo X, constituting the bishop and inquisitor of each diocese a board of censors of all books. 
Printers disregarding their commands were visited with excommunication, suspension from business, and a fine of a hundred ducats applicable to the fabric of St. Peter's. In obedience to this, Cardinal Albrecht of Mainz, in 1517, appointed his vicar, Paul, Bishop of Ascalon, and Dr. Jodocus Trudwetter as inquisitors and censors of the press. These measures, which were the precursor of the index, were in vain. When, in 1521, Charles V, in the Edict of Worms, ordered all Luther's books to be surrendered and burned, Cochleus tells us that they were only the more eagerly sought for, and brought better prices. The dissemination of the scriptures and the propagation of the anti-sacerdotal views of the humanists naturally led to questioning the conclusions of scholastic theology and to increased impatience of the papal autocracy, these being regarded as the source of the evils so generally and so grievously felt. The new teachings found a wide and receptive audience, fully prepared to carry them to their ultimate conclusions, in the numberless associations, partly literary and artistic, partly religious, which existed throughout the Teutonic lands. In the Netherlands there were everywhere to be found chambers of rhetoric, exercising a powerful influence on public opinion, and these had long been hostile to the clergy, whose vices were a favorite subject of their ballads and rondels, their moralities and farces. Less popular, but still dangerously influential, were the so-called academies which sprang up all over Germany with the revival of learning, and which cherished tendencies adverse to the dogmas of the Church and to her practical use of those dogmas. In 1520, Alexander includes among the worst enemies of the papacy the grumbling race of grammarians and poets which swarmed everywhere throughout the land. There were also numerous more or less secret societies and associations entertaining various opinions, but all heretical to a greater or less degree. These were partly the representatives of mysticism which, since the days of Master Eckhart and Tauler, had never ceased to flourish in Germany. Partly they were the survivors of the Valdensianism, so pitilessly persecuted, yet never suppressed. Zwingli? Ecolampadius, Butzer, and other leaders of the reform had received their early impressions in these associations, and the sudden outburst of Anabaptism shows how numerous were the dissidents from Rome who were not prepared to accept the limitations of the Lutheran creed. The Anabaptists, moreover, were but a portion of these evangelicals, as they styled themselves, for adult baptism was not a feature of their original tenets, and when it was adopted as a doctrine, it led to a division in their ranks. The influence of art, as well as of literature, in stimulating opposition to Rome, is seen in the number of artists belonging to the evangelical bodies. When, in 1524, the Lutherans, under the lead of Osiander, obtained control in Nuremberg, the heretics whom they arrested included Georg Pench, Bartel and Siebald Böhm, Ludwig Krug, and others. By Luther, as well as by Rome, Albrecht Dürer was accounted a heretic. The combination of all these factors rendered an explosion inevitable, and Germany was predestined to be its scene. The ground was better prepared for it there than elsewhere, by the deeper moral and religious earnestness of the people, and by the tendencies of the academies and associations with which society was honeycombed. In obedience to these influences, the humanistic movement had not been pagan and atheistic as in Italy, but had addressed itself to the higher emotions 
and had sought to train the conscience of the individual to recognize his direct responsibility to God and to his fellows. But more potent than all this were the forces arising from the political system of Germany and its relations with the Holy See. The Teutonic spirit of independence had early found expression in the Sachsenspiegel and Sächsische Weichsbild, the laws and customs of northern Germany, which were resolutely maintained in spite of repeated papal condemnation. Thus not only did the church inspire there less awe than elsewhere in Europe, but throughout the Middle Ages there had been special causes of antagonism actively at work. If Italy had suffered bitterly from the Tedeschi, Germany had no less reason to hate the papacy. The fatal curse of the so-called Holy Roman Empire hung over both lands. It gave the emperor a valid right to the suzerainty of the peninsula. It gave the papacy a traditional claim to confirm at its discretion the election of an emperor. Conflicting and incompatible pretensions rendered impossible a permanent truce between the representatives of Charlemagne and St. Peter. Since the age of Gregory VII, the consistent policy of Rome had been to cripple the empire by fomenting internal dissension and rendering impossible the evolution of a strong and centralized government such as elsewhere in Europe was gradually overcoming the centrifugal forces of feudalism. This policy had been successful, and Germany had become a mere geographical expression, a congeries of sovereign princes, petty and great, owing allegiance to an emperor, whose dignity was scarce more than a primacy of honor, and whose actual power was to be measured by that of his ancestral territories. The result of this was that Germany lay exposed defenseless to the rapacity and oppression of the Roman Curia. Its multitudinous sovereigns had vindicated their independence at the cost of depriving themselves of the strength to be derived from centralized unions. Germany was the ordinary resource of a pope in financial straits. Through the exaction of a tithe, the rising of the annates, or the issue in unstinted volume of the treasure of the merits of Christ, in the form of an unremitting stream of indulgences, which sucked up, as with a sponge, the savings of the people. Nor could any steady opposition be offered to the absorption of the ecclesiastical patronage by the curia, through which benefices were sold or bestowed on the cardinals or their creatures, and no limits could be set on appeals to the Holy See, which enlarged its jurisdiction and impoverished pleaders by involving them in interminable and ruinous litigation in the venal Roman courts. It was in vain that in 1438 the Roman king Albert II endeavoured to emulate Charles VII of France by proclaiming a pragmatic sanction, defining the limits of papal authority. He died the next year, and was followed by the feeble Frederick III, during whose long reign of fifty-three years the imperial authority was reduced to a shadow. It was probably to procure a promise of papal coronation that, in 1448, he agreed to a concordat, under which the reservation of benefices to the Pope, as made by John Twenty Second and Benedict Twelfth, was assured. The election of bishops was subjected to papal confirmation with the privilege of substituting a better candidate by advice of the sacred college. Canonries and other benefices falling vacant during the six uneven months were conceded to the Pope, and a promise was made that the annates should be moderate and be payable in installments during two years. This was a triumph of Italian diplomacy, for the leaven of Basel was still working in Germany, and the Basilian anti-Pope Felix V 
was endeavouring to secure recognition. But Aeneas Silvius notified Nicholas V that this was only a truce, not a permanent peace, and that the utmost skill would be required to avert a rupture, for there were dangerous times ahead, and currents under the surface that would call for careful piloting. Advantageous as the concordat was to Rome, the Curia could not be restrained to its observance, and in 1455 the three spiritual electors of Mainz, Trier, and Cologne united in complaints of its violation. With other bishops and princes of the empire, they bound themselves to resist a tithe demanded by Calixtus III and to send his pardoners back across the Alps with empty purses. They agitated for the enforcement of the canons of Constance and Basel, and urged Frederick III to proclaim a pragmatic sanction. Various assemblies were held during the next two years to promote these objects, and in 1457 Dr. Martin Mayer, Chancellor of the Archbishop of Mainz, in a letter to Aeneas Silvius, bitterly complained of the papal exactions, whereby Germany was drained of its gold, and that nation which, by its valour, had won the Roman Empire, and had been the mistress of the world, was reduced to want and servitude, to grief and squalor. Calixtus met the German complaints with a serene consciousness of the weakness of his adversaries. To the prelates he wrote threatening them with punishment, spiritual and temporal. To Frederick he admitted that mistakes might have been made in the pressure of business, but there had been no intentional violation of the concordat. It was true that the Holy See was supreme, and was not to be fettered by the terms of any agreement but still, out of liberality and love of peace and affection for the person of the emperor, the compact should be observed. No one must dare to oppose the Roman church. If Germany thought it had reason to complain, it could appeal to him. The result corresponded to the expectations of Calixtus. The confederates suspected their leader, Archbishop Dietrich of Mainz, of desiring to sell them, and after some further agitation, in 1458, the movement fell to pieces. It was promptly followed by another, of even more dangerous aspect. Dietrich of Mainz died, May 6, 1459, and was succeeded by Dieter von Isenburg. Pius II, then Aeneas Silvius, had negotiated the Concordat of 1448, which stipulated that Annate should be moderate, and be payable by installments. Yet he refused to confirm Dieter, except on condition that he would satisfy the demands of the camera for his annates. Dieter's envoys agreed, and the cost of the confirmation was fixed at 20,550 gulden, to be advanced on the spot by Roman bankers. These accordingly paid the shares of the Pope, the cardinals, and the lower officials, taking from them receipts which bore that they would refund the money in case Dieter failed to meet the obligations given by his agents. He claimed that the amount was largely in excess of all precedent, repudiated the agreement, and disregarded the consequent excommunication. The result of this scandalous transaction was a series of disturbances which kept Germany in turmoil for three years. Leagues were formed to replace Frederick III by George Podiebrad, and to adopt as the laws of the land the Basilian canons, one of which abrogated the Annates. Gregor Heimburg was sent to France to arrange for common action against the Holy See, and there seemed to be a prospect that Germany at last might assert its independence of the Curia. 
but the papal agents, with profuse promises, detached one member of the alliance after another, and finally Dita was left alone. He offered submission, but Pius secretly sent to Adolf of Nassau, one of the canons of Mainz, a brief appointing him archbishop and removing Dita. This led to a bloody war between the rivals, until, in October 1463, they reached a compromise, Adolf retaining the title and conceding to Dieter a portion of the territory. Thus the papacy triumphed through its habitual policy of dividing and conquering. There could be no successful resistance to oppression by alliances in which every member felt that he might at any moment be abandoned by his allies. Yet this fruitless contest has special interest in the fact that Dieter issued, May 30, 1462, a manifesto calling upon all German princes to take to heart the example of injustice and oppression of which they might be the next victims. And this manifesto, we are told, was printed by Gutenberg, an omen of the aid which the new art was to render in the struggle with Rome. Even more bitter was the conflict, lasting from 1457 to 1464, between Sigismund, Duke of Tyrol, and Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, as Bishop of Brixen, arising from his praiseworthy attempt to reform his clergy. In this struggle, Sigismund had the support of both clergy and people, and was able to disregard the interdicts freely launched upon the land, as well as to resist the Swiss, whom Pius II induced to take up arms against him. He held out bravely, and the matter was finally settled by an agreement in which he asked for pardon and absolution, thus saving the honour of the Holy See. If this was a drawn battle between the secular power and the church, it did not lessen the effect of the triumphs which the Curia had won in the contests with the great Archbishop of Mainz. Unsuccessful resistance leads to fresh aggression, and it is not to be supposed that Rome failed to make the most of her victories over the German church. At the great assembly of the clergy at Koblenz in 1479, there were countless complaints of the Holy See, chiefly directed against its violations of the Concordat, its unlawful taxation, the privileges granted to the mendicant orders, and the numerous exemptions. It was doubtless this demonstration that led, in 1480, to the negotiation of an agreement between Sixtus IV and the Emperor Frederick, in which the latter was pledged to keep Germany obedient to the Pope, while the Pope was to sustain the Emperor with the free use of censures. This meant encouragement to fresh aggressions, and the indignation of the clergy found expression in the grievances presented, in 1510, to the emperor-elect Maximilian. They asserted, with scant ceremony, that the papacy could be restrained by no agreements or conventions, seeing that it granted, for the benefit of the vilest persons, dispensations, suspensions, revocations, and other devices for nullifying its promises and evading its wholesome regulations. The elections of prelates were set aside. The right of choosing provosts, which many chapters had purchased with heavy payments, was disregarded. The greater benefices and dignities were bestowed on the cardinals and protonotaries of the curia. Expectatives were granted without number, giving rise to ruinous litigation. Annates were exacted promptly and mercilessly, and sometimes more was extorted than was due. The cure of souls was committed by Rome to those fitted rather to take charge of mules than of men. 
In order to raise money, new indulgences were issued, with suspension of the old, the laity being thus made to murmur against the clergy. Tithes were exacted under the pretext of war against the Turks, yet no expeditions were sent forth, and cases which should be tried at home were carried without distinction to Rome. Maximilian was seriously considering a plan for releasing Germany from the yoke of the Curia, and for preventing the transfer to Rome of the large sums which Julius II was employing to his special detriment. He thought of the withdrawal of the Annates and of the appointment of a permanent legate, who should be a German and exercise a general jurisdiction. But Jacob Wimpeling, who was consulted by the emperor-elect, while expressing himself vigorously as to the suffering of Germany from the Curia, thought it wiser to endure in the hope of amendment rather than to risk a schism. Amendment, however, in obedience to any internal dispute, was out of the question. The Lateran Council met, deliberated, and dissolved, without offering to the most sanguine the slightest rational expectations of the relief. The only resource lay in revolution, and Germany was ready for the signal. In 1521, Denuncio Aleander writes that, five years before, he had mentioned to Pope Leo his dread of a German uprising, he had heard from many Germans that they were only waiting for some fool to open his mouth against Rome. If Germany was thus the predestined scene of the outbreak, it was also the land in which the chances of success were the greatest. The very political condition which baffled all attempts at self-protection likewise barred the way to the suppression of the movement. A single prince, like the elector Frederick of Saxony, could protect it in its infancy. As the revolt made progress, other princes could join it, whether moved by religious considerations, or by way of maintaining the allegiance of their subjects, or in order to seize the temporalities and pious foundations, or, like Albrecht of Brandenburg, to found a principality and a dynasty. We need not here inquire too closely into the motives of which the League of Schmalkalden was the outcome, and may content ourselves with pointing to the fact that even Charles V was, in spite of the victory of Mühlberg, powerless to restore the imperial supremacy or to impose his will on the Protestant states. The progress of the Reformation, and still more so that of the Counter-Reformation, lie outside the limits of the present chapter, but it may be concluded by a few words suggesting why the abuses, which in the sixteenth century could only be cured by rending the church in twain, have, to so large an extent, disappeared since the Reformation, leading many enthusiasts to feel regret that the venerable ecclesiastical structure was not purified from within, that reform was not adopted in place of schism. The abuses under which Christendom grown were too inveterate, too firmly entrenched, and too profitable to be removed by any but the sternest and sharpest remedies. The task was too great even for papal omnipotence. The attempt of Adrian VI had broken down. In 1555, the future Cardinal Seripando, in announcing to the Bishop of Fiesole the death of Marcellus II, who in his short pontificate of twenty-two days had manifested a resolute determination to correct abuses, says that perhaps God, in thus bringing reform so near, and then destroying all hope of it, had wished to show that it is not to be the work of human hands, and is not to come in the way expected by us, but in some way that we have not been able to conjecture. 
In truth, the slow operation was required of causes for the most part external. So long as the Roman Church held the monopoly of salvation, it inevitably followed the practice of all monopolies in exacting all that the market would yield, in obtaining the maximum of power and wealth. When Northern Europe had definitely seceded, and a large proportion of the rest of the continent was trembling in the balance, when what was lost could not be regained, and a strenuous effort was required to save the remainder, the Church at length recognized that she stood face to face with a permanent competitor, whose rivalry could only be met by her casting off the burdens that impeded her in the struggle. To this the Council of Trent contributed something, and the stern purpose of Pius V, followed at intervals by other pontiffs, still more. The permanent supremacy of Spain in Italy checked the aspirations of the Holy See towards enlarging its temporal dominions. The chief source of cause of advance, however, is the action of the secular princes who sustained the cause of the Church during a century of religious wars. The Reformation had emancipated their power as well as the spirit of Protestantism. If the Church required their support, she must yield to their exigencies. She could no longer claim to decide peremptorily and without appeal as to the boundary line between the spiritual and the temporal authority in the dominions of each of them, and she could no longer shield her criminals from their justice. Together with the progress of the Reformation, a phase of absolute monarchy had developed itself through which the European nations passed, and the enforcement of the regalia put an end to a large part of the grievances which caused the church of the fifteenth century to be so fiercely hated. Whether or not the populations were benefited by the change of masters, the church was no longer responsible, and for the loss of her temporal authority and the final secularization of her temporalities, she has found recompense tenfold in the renewed vigor of her spiritual vitality. End of section 67 End of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance.